As I get started today, I want to take a moment to speak to our current cultural climate. Obviously, there's a lot of race-related issues being discussed, and I want to say right off the bat, I'm not an expert when it comes to these things. I'm much more ready to, to listen and learn from others than I am to proclaim. But I also don't want to avoid saying something on the topic. That's not helpful. So I thought I might begin by simply sharing some of my own personal journey when it comes to understanding race and racism. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to visit the city of Atlanta. I was there for a conference. and. In some of the downtime before the conference, we decided to visit the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial. There's something beautifully ironic about a national park that's actually a church, but it was in fact a very profound experience. As we toured the, the Civil Rights Museum that's near Dr. King's church, it was a very moving experience. Seeing so many people who stood up and fought and sacrificed for the sake of others was very inspirational. And at the same time, it was very sobering seeing the great challenges that these people faced, challenges that made even the simplest of activities difficult. The systemic racism that was woven through every part of that museum was overwhelming. And as I went from exhibit to exhibit, photograph to photograph, statistic to statistic, I began to see my own role in creating a world where racism is allowed to flourish. I realized that I have not been willing to care, to inconvenience myself for others who can't speak for themselves. And as I've reflected on my own personal response to these recent events, that time at the Civil Rights Museum keeps coming back to me. Now, I don't consider myself a racist person. I think most people don't feel that way about themselves. But I did grow up in the South, and I grew up in a world where systemic racism was always present. It was inescapable. And I think we've all discovered that we all still live in that world. Now, as Christians especially, we constantly live in the tension that we're citizens of another kingdom, even though we live in this broken world. We have a mandate to bring God's kingdom ethics to bear on this world. And in my own life, as I've worked to process some of these things. I came across a book. It was recommended by a friend, a book called White Awake. And this book is all about confronting racism. The author of the book is a pastor, and in the book he tells a story. He tells a story of his efforts to plant a church in the Chicago area that was culturally diverse. And as he was building that church, he was invited by a group of minority pastors in the area to come to a meeting and learn more about his desire to create this culturally diverse church. And he tells the story of the meeting, and let's just say when he left, he was discouraged. Discouraged because he realized he still had so much to learn. He was, like so many of us, only beginning to awaken to all the ways God wanted to grow him. And he left that meeting asking himself a question that maybe you've asked yourself. He asked, what am I supposed to do? He was at a loss as to how to move forward. Well, in the Bible, a man named Nicodemus asked Jesus essentially that same question. Nicodemus had realized how much he still had to learn, even though he thought he was an expert. And Jesus' response to Nicodemus was confusing to him. It turns out that Nicodemus was looking for something concrete, something simple, something he could do in order to become a better person. What can I do in order to solve this problem? Or what can I do in order to draw closer to God? Many of us have asked that same kind of question, looking for an easy answer. But Jesus told him, it's not something you do. Jesus told him, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
See, it's not one more thing to add to the things you're already doing. He told, he told Nicodemus that the world worked in a way that's different than he even thought. Even though Nicodemus was a religious expert, he was still spiritually blind to reality. And maybe that's the same kind of realization some of us are having now. Maybe you're waking up to the fact that the world doesn't operate the way we think. Maybe we're all realizing our own blind spots, especially as it relates to race. And in this book, this pastor, he tells this story, and he comes back over and over to this idea of being born again. And as I'm on my own journey in this area, that's the idea I come back to again and again. Being born again, it's not something you do. It's a work of God. And it's a complete overhaul of how we understand identity, our identity and others' identity. When we're born again, we run everything through a new filter, through the one that comes from God. So I'm far from an expert when it comes to race relations, when it comes to systemic injustice, so I'm not going to give us one more thing to do. Instead, my encouragement to each of us is to stay on the journey, to resist adding one more thing to do, resist the easy solutions, but instead to surrender to God. Just take a step back and ask God what he would have us do. Let him change our hearts and minds and let him guide our action. We've been born again into salvation from sin, and we can continue to surrender ourselves to God and be born again into God's understanding of cultural identity and of our ongoing blind spots. And there's a lot more that could be said on this topic, and I think in this series we might end up addressing some more. God has timed this sermon series just right beyond what I even had in mind. Today, we start a brand new series built around a question. And that question is not, what am I supposed to do? But it is similar. This is a series called, Why? Lots of us find ourselves asking the same question these days. Why? Why are we in this situation? Why are we having to do this or do that or not do this and not do that? Maybe we have questions about the, the COVID situation that are challenging to us. Maybe there's other things in our lives that make us ask God, why? Well, in this series, we're going to ask that very question, and God will answer because he has an entire book of the Bible that's all about that question. Why does God allow bad things in the world? And what are we supposed to do about it? The book we're going to focus on is not a very well-known book of the Bible, but perhaps it should be. It's in the Old Testament, the book of Habakkuk. And in this book, the prophet Habakkuk has an honest conversation with God. He's looking around at the world he was in, and he realized that a lot of things don't make sense. Based on what he knew about God, he couldn't understand why certain things were happening. So he asked God this question that all of us have asked. Why? What are you doing, God, and what am I supposed to do? I feel a little bit like I should be on Sesame Street with this letter Y, but, but it's actually going to be our guide through the entire book of Habakkuk. We're going to start with Habakkuk himself asking God this question, why? And we're going to see how God responds, how Habakkuk responds, and ultimately how we should respond. So let's start just by reading the opening verses of the book. We're just going to read the first four verses. The pronouncement that the prophet Habakkuk saw, How long, Yahweh, must I call for help, and you do not listen, or cry out to you about violence, and you do not save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? 
Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges, for the wicked restrict the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. So we start with a simple question. Why? That question shows up three times here, and even in asking that question, we're in good company. We're in the company of the prophet Habakkuk. Now, some people might pronounce his name Habakkuk, but I'll just tell you what my preaching professor told me never to tell anybody. He said, if you don't know how to pronounce a name or a word in the Bible, you just say it with a lot of confidence, and then everybody who's listening will think, oh, well, that's how you say that word. So, Habakkuk was a prophet, and many people believe he was also a priest in the temple. So he was a smart guy, theologically very wise. He knew a lot of the right answers. And more importantly, he was a man of great faith. You can see that even as you read through this book. And yet, he still asks this question. Why? We're in good company in asking that question ourselves. His name, the name Habakkuk, it means something like to embrace. Or it might mean to wrestle. And I tell you that because Habakkuk does both of those things. He wrestles with God, asking the tough questions, and then asking them again. But he also embraces. He embraces the truth about God. He embraces God's answers to those tough questions. And I want us to be able to do both of those things, too. Over the next few weeks, we'll be wrestling with the hard questions, but then hopefully embracing God's truth. And the first of those hard questions is, why? And specifically for Habakkuk, he asks God, why does God allow bad things to happen? Why does God allow injustice? And what are we supposed to do about it? What are we supposed to think about God when there are so many bad things that happen in the world? I mean, even through this COVID season, so many things have been taken away from us. Why? Why does God allow that to happen? As Habakkuk says, why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Bad people get away with bad things all the time, and it seems like nobody's paying attention. And these are all legitimate questions. These are all questions that maybe you've asked at some point, maybe even this week. These are genuine questions. But I want us to look at the text again, and I want us to notice something behind these questions. Take a look, starting at verse 2. How long, Yahweh, must I call for help and you do not listen? Or I cry out to you about violence and you do not save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges, for the wicked restrict the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Now you can see the highlighted portions there. Habakkuk's questions are genuine, but they all have a thread running through them. Me, me, me. His concern is really himself. And notice right in verse 4 there, he draws a line between the wicked and the righteous, and you can bet he's putting himself right there in the righteous camp. So Habakkuk's questions have a little bit of a selfish motive. He's not strictly worried about evil in the world. He's not only worried about injustice in the world, but instead he's mostly worried about injustice done to him. Why do I have to look at this, God? Not recognizing that God spends all day, every day, looking at our injustice and our evil attitudes. So right away, there's a potent lesson for us here. 
when we're outraged, when we're upset by the world, when we're ready to take to the streets and protest, what's really behind our motives? Justice? Righteousness? Or is it only me, me, me? You know, over the past couple of weeks, I've seen tons and tons of well-meaning people and organizations posting anti-racism statements on social media, and, and that's great. I'm really glad that we're all awakening to issues that cannot be ignored. But I can't help but think that we're all a little bit like Habakkuk. There's a lot of folks telling us what justice should look like, which is great. But there's not a lot of us who are admitting our own role in systemic racial injustice. In other words, a lot of us are putting ourselves in the righteous camp, not the wicked camp. But if all of us understood race relations so well as to be able to instruct everybody else, then we wouldn't be in this position in the first place. So right away, there's a powerful lesson here. When we find ourselves asking why, it's not a bad thing, but let's carefully check our motives. So often, when we ask God why, when we're angry, We've been inconvenienced in our own lives. When the why gets really personal for us, then we get angry with God. We make the situation about me, me, me. And even though Habakkuk's motives are a bit selfish, even though his frustration stems largely from his own inconvenience, God is gracious to him. God is gracious because God answers him. Habakkuk does what so many of us have done. He asks why, and God answers him. Now that alone is encouraging because it tells us God is paying attention. I mean, so many times we pray these desperate questions, we respond to these terrible things, we feel as if God is silent, as if he doesn't see the terrible things we see, or he doesn't respond to the things that we think are so important. But another great lesson from this book of Habakkuk is that God answers. He does see. He does respond. And as we'll see in a moment, God already has a plan in place before Habakkuk ever asks him to do something. So let's be encouraged that God is with his people. He is the God who sees. And he's the God who will bring justice. He's shown us that in his word. He will bring justice. Now, that doesn't mean that we're all off the hook. As Christ followers, we need to be agents of God's justice here and now, agents of his mercy, caring for, looking out for those who can't advocate for themselves. But we do that as representatives of the true and coming King. The one who cares for the poor, confronts the powerful, and turns the table on oppressive culture. God is with us. So we can be encouraged that God does answer. But part of the challenge for Habakkuk is exactly how God answers. So let's take a look at the answer God gives Habakkuk. Habakkuk sees all this injustice in the nation of Israel, all these problems. People are perverting the law, they're oppressing others, there's violence, all kinds of things that are bad. God's people are not representing God well. So Habakkuk, this theologically wise person, this man of great faith, says basically, God, why won't you do something about all this? Why won't you intervene and bring justice? And this is how God responds. Verse 5. Look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded. For I am doing something in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. Look, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter, impetuous nation that marches across the earth's open spaces to seize territories not its own, they are fierce and terrifying. Their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. Well, God's answer is less than satisfying. It's shocking, in fact. 
God says, you see all that injustice that my people are committing? I'm going to bring an even more unjust nation to solve the problem. God tells Habakkuk he's raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, the most horrific nation there was. Now you can tell from reading the rest of Habakkuk, these Babylonians, the Chaldeans, they're terrible people. They were violent. They had no allegiance to God, no desire for peace. This was the worst possible solution that God could have come up with. And yet God tells Habakkuk he'll solve the injustice problem with what seems like even more injustice. God's solution to their problem is to give them a bigger problem? The Babylonians coming and invading with no solution at all, at least according to Habakkuk. Have you ever had that kind of experience, that kind of moment, when you ask God, why? And his answer is less than satisfying. The why turns from a question to a, you've got to be kidding me. And yet, yet, let's not get too hasty. So often when God either doesn't answer or his answer is unsatisfying, then that's the mode you, we turn to. You've got to be kidding me. But instead, we need to recognize a couple of things. We, we need to recognize first that God does answer Habakkuk. And God gives him some detailed information. God shares with him what's going to happen. Now, obviously, for us, that doesn't happen very often, where God tells us what's going to happen in the future. But that's what happens to Habakkuk. Yet, we can learn from this moment in Habakkuk. God doesn't reveal the future to us like he does here with Habakkuk. Yet, God does give us revelation. God gives us his word that helps us understand his character and his actions. God does not often reveal the future to us in such detail, yet God does reveal himself to us. And that is often how God will answer our questions of why. I don't know if you've ever had that kind of moment where you're, you're struggling with something. Maybe it's a decision you need to make or some source of stress in your life, and you, and you find some comfort in God's Word. God reveals an answer for us in His Word. I don't know if you ever had that kind of moment, but I hope you have. So, he got, God doesn't lay all His cards on the table for us, and yet, God does reveal Himself to us, and we can trust in His character, His love for us, His past actions that indicate the way he's going to care for us in the future. One pastor says it well, in times like these, times when we're asking why, we need revelation, not explanation. God does not often give us explanation, but he does give us revelation. He has revealed himself to us. And what God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what he'll do in the future only he's too creative to do the same thing in the same way twice. I shared that thought with you before from one of my spiritual mentors. What God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what he'll do in the future. Only he's too creative to do the same thing in the same way twice. So God doesn't give us explanation, yet God gives us revelation. God does not owe us an explanation, Yet he's gracious to give us a revelation of himself. That's one thing that is important to remember when we find ourselves asking why. He doesn't owe us an explanation, yet he does give us a revelation. This section of Habakkuk chapter 1 teaches us something else about how to respond when we wait. It tells us that God gives us revelation. It also tells us something else. Look at verse 5 again. Look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded, for I am doing something in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. 
that, that last couple of lines, you will not believe, tells us another way we need to respond when we ask God why. It tells us we need to respond with faith. God tells Habakkuk that his plan to help the Israelites, God's people, learn to obey him, learn to shape their lives more like him, God's plan to help them is to bring calamity on them, destruction on them. He's allowing the Babylonians to come and have their way with the people of Israel. And Habakkuk's only response is to have faith, to trust that God knows what he's doing. God is at work even when we don't see it. God says, I am doing something in your day that you will not believe. And that same response, faith in God's revelation, that's the response we should have. God is still at work, still doing things, even when the things God is doing are hard for us to understand or even when they're not to our liking. We take the focus away from me, 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 and onto you, you, you. We respond with faith in God. And that shift from me to you to God, that's exactly what Habakkuk does next. In the next section, starting at verse 12, Habakkuk speaks again. He responds to God. He's asked that question, why, and God answered. God didn't give him an explanation, yet God graciously gave him revelation. And now let's read how Habakkuk responds. These are Habakkuk's words back to God, verse 12. Are you not from eternity, Yahweh, my God, my Holy One? You will not die. Yahweh, you appointed them to execute judgment, my rock. You destined them to punish us. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself? You have made mankind like the fish of the sea, like marine creatures that have no ruler. In the first section, the first few verses of this chapter, we, we peeled back the layers. We highlighted Habakkuk's motive behind this question, why? We saw that really his questions were me, me, me. When we peel back the layer here in these verses, notice what emerges. As you see this, you see Habakkuk turns the focus on to God. You, you, you. That word shows up nine times here. When Habakkuk struggles with God's response, he chooses to fall back on the character of God. He chooses to focus on you, to focus on God. He still doesn't understand what God is really doing, but he chooses to believe because he knows who God is. Habakkuk asks some of the most challenging and penetrating questions in the whole Bible. He doesn't hold anything back from God. He clearly has a strong relationship, and as we said before, he's a man of great faith. And even though Habakkuk doesn't understand what God is doing, he does respond in faith. He turns his doubts and uncertainty, and he gives them back to God. And that's another lesson for us. When we find ourselves asking why, it's easy for those kinds of questions to turn into doubts about God, about his goodness. If God is so good, why would he allow this or that? But the lesson here for us is that doubts and questions are okay. They're okay if they come up back around to you, 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 if they're exercised in faith. One of my Favorite stories in the Bible comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 11. And in Matthew 11, John the Baptist, he's been in prison. He knows he's very likely to be killed, executed. And he was thrown in jail because he stood up for what's right, no fault of his own. 
And remember, John, he's been ministering in Israel, preparing people for the coming Messiah, Jesus. He's given his entire adult life to pointing people to Jesus. And yet, yet, as he's rotting away in that filthy prison, he begins to have doubts. He begins to ask, why? Why would God allow this to happen to him? He even begins to doubt if he's somehow wasted his life, if he's missed something. He starts to wonder if Jesus really even is all that he says he is. He has some very big doubts. And yet, he takes those doubts, he takes those questions, and he responds with faith. He doesn't just sit and stew on all those questions. He takes them to Jesus. Listen to the passage. Now, when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples, and he asked him, Are you the one who's to come, or should we expect someone else? He has a fundamental question. He's doubting the very identity of Jesus, the, the Christ, the Messiah. But he takes his question straight to Jesus. Are you the one or not? And Jesus responds. Jesus doesn't give him an explanation, yet he does give him a revelation. Here's how Jesus answers. Jesus replied to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. Jesus gives him revelation. He reminds John that all the things that are happening are signs. The person who can heal the blind and the lame and the deaf is the Messiah. Only the Messiah can raise people from the dead and can bring justice and good news to those who are disenfranchised. Those signs that were happening are the revelation that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. And I don't know for sure how John responded when he got word back about what Jesus had said. I don't know. But I do know that he acted with faith. He took his why question and he gave it to you, to Jesus. And let's not overlook the fact that John still died. He was, in fact, beheaded at the whim of evil people. So John's circumstances did not get better. This is not a formula for making everything right in your world. But John did get a revelation about Jesus, and I think he went confidently to death, knowing that he had put his faith in the one true God and the one Messiah, Jesus. Now, one thing I do know for sure is how Jesus responded to him. After Jesus shares this news, this response for John, he turns to the crowd, and he says this, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. Jesus affirms the faith of John, even though he had questions. Jesus affirms his worth and value, even though he asks, why? Well, Habakkuk exercises the same kind of faith. He turns his focus from why to you, reminding himself of God's character. He affirms this about God and his plan. Are you not from eternity, Lord my God, my Holy One? You will not die, Lord you appointed them to execute judgment. My rock, you destined them to punish us. So he knows that God knows the end from the beginning. So he trusts in that, even though he knows bad things are coming. Where Habakkuk goes wrong, though, is the same place that all of us go wrong. In fact, this is one more place where this book of Habakkuk speaks to current events. I told you at the beginning that Habakkuk draws a line between the wicked and the righteous. And notice what he says to God in verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? 
Once again, Habakkuk's making a distinction between himself and those who are evil. And when you begin to compare yourself to others who are really racist or really evil, when you compare us to uh, the Babylonians, well, there's no comparison, right? And yet I seem to recall Jesus saying something about removing the plank from our own eyes before we try to address the speck in someone else's. One thing we've got to be very careful about, especially in times when we ask why. One thing we need to be careful about, and this current cultural situation is a great example of this. We need to be careful not to categorize people in the wrong ways. As soon as we start talking about us and them, or wicked and righteous, or God, why would you allow those bad people to do this or that without recognizing the evil in our own hearts? That's a problem. And it's such a problem that it's in fact at the heart of why Jesus came. The Bible is very clear that all of us are evil. We all have evil in our core. Later on in the book of Romans, Paul actually quotes from Habakkuk. We'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 2, but Paul describes the reality that the whole world is deserving of God's wrath. In that sense, Habakkuk is right. God should not tolerate evil and wrongdoing. Paul agrees with him. Paul says the world is full of people who suppress the truth, who give their attention to false idols, who satisfy their desires with every kind of sexual immorality, people who lie and gossip and murder, people who are God-haters, inventing new kinds of evil to bring to the world. God is right to judge those people. And yet, Paul goes on to say that when we judge those people, we condemn ourselves, because we too are guilty of evil. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to earth in order to do for evil people what we could not do ourselves. His death paid the price that our evil earned. And his resurrection gives us new life, not so that we can go and condemn others, but so that we can live in such a way as to represent him and his kingdom in the world, responding to evil with an offer of grace and mercy. So just like Nicodemus, the only remedy for us and for others is to be born again, to be completely remade, which is work that only God can do. God does not leave us any room to keep categorizing people as us and them when it comes to our actions and attitudes. We recognize cultural differences, yes, but we have to avoid feeling and acting superior to others in the way that Habakkuk does. The gospel demands that we're all equal and we're all equally in need of God's redemptive work. So we have no choice but to enter into difficult times Times when we ask why with humility and grace. And it all leads us to our own response. When we have trying times, when we find ourselves asking why, we can respond in faith, turning our attention off of me, 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 and onto you. And as we do that, we find ourselves in the perfect position to see God at work. Ultimately, our response is summed up in one word. And yes, it starts with a why. Our response is to yield. Yield. That's the last thing Habakkuk models for us today. And it comes at the beginning of the next chapter, chapter 2. Habakkuk finally resigns himself to wait on God. Look with me. I will stand at my guard post and station myself on the lookout tower. I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I should reply about my complaint. Habakkuk finally yields himself to God. He simply decides to wait on God. Now, let me ask you a question. You can think about this on your own. You can talk about it with other folks who might be watching with you. 
Do you think Habakkuk waits with the right attitude? Think about that for a bit today. And here's another question. Does it matter? I mean, after all, God does answer him. God is gracious to respond to him, even if his attitude is flawed. And that's even more good news for us this morning, because not only is God at work in the world, but God wants to teach Habakkuk through all this, too. And God wants to teach us also. And his teaching will only seek into us if we yield to him, putting his purposes ahead of our own. So as we look around the world, as we find ourselves asking why, let's resolve to avoid selfishness, avoid the me, 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 the false categories that Habakkuk is tempted by. Let's trust that God may not give explanation, yet he does give us revelation. He gives us himself. And so we lean into him, putting the focus on you, on his character and actions. And when we do that, we find ourselves yielding to him. His will, not ours, be done. Let's pray. Father, even when so many things have been changed, so many things have been taken away, even though our whole church can't be together yet, even though we wonder why, God, what are you up to and what are we supposed to do even in the midst of all these things lord we want to worship you and we worship you because we have access to you when so much access has been cut off our access to you has not because of what your son has done and we rest in that reality that his work for us has not been something to add to our goodness but it's made us born again, taken the evil in us and transformed us into agents of your kingdom and your mercy. And so we want to yield ourselves to you. Even as we ask hard questions, Lord, we want to exercise faith, keeping our focus on you, yielding our will to yours, and pray that you would give us what we need to be able to do that, even this week, Lord. And we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.